Thank you, John. Uh, it's really an honor for me to be up here. I'm Daniel Wagner. I'm the executive pastor of ministry here. And I'm here because Robert is gone. Uh, when Robert's not preaching, it doesn't always mean he's out, but it does today. He's really suffering for the Lord as we'll look at a passage on trials. He did a wedding last night at Rosemary Beach. So it's a tough life. And I would like to say on behalf of me and John does weddings and Van does weddings, um, we are also available for things like that. So if you have an extravagant destination wedding and you need somebody, daniel.wagner, fondermchurch.com. Uh, but I'm up here today excited to kick off a new series for us where we're looking at the book of James over the next five weeks. And the book of James is a book that's really meant a lot to me. It's one of the first books of the Bible that I read for myself. And John just stood up here and read the passage that we'll go through. So if you're a paper Bible person, we need more of you. I need to be like you, but you could turn to James 1. And what we'll do in the balance of our time is really kind of survey over the top of this. I'm going to go deep where we need to. I'll have a couple of words up here on the screen that are underlined. But instead of spending just a little bit of time in the concentration of where we're going to be in verse 2, 3, and 4, I want to set this in the larger context. And we uh, title sermons around here. It's kind of just a thing that preachers do. It helps you know where you're going. And the title of this sermon that I was given is Pass the Test. Pass the Test. And it's this, if we all get this, that there is a test in our life. It's a test of faithfulness, a test of obedience. And it would be that each person created who would not know Jesus Christ would come to know them in faith by God's grace, and that we would live a life of faithfulness where we would pass the test. But we'll look at a few things where we're really, honestly, if we're honest with ourselves, kind of uh, often distracted, we're often hard-pressed, we're almost crushed, the scripture would tell us, that when we recover, uh, you know, our senses, we, we realize we've been through this kind of trial, this thing that is hard-pressing on us, and this trial that's spoken to really well of James. So what can we do here in the balance of our time? And I would pray that you would, as you're a believer, continue to foster in your life preparedness to pass the test. So I'm, I'm thoroughly from here. I grew up in the Jackson Metro and have spent all my life here. And I went to a high school down the road that way that had a PSAT prep course like class rotation. So me and other nerds for two semesters took this class that was supposed to prepare us to pass the PSAT. It's a practice standardized test or standardized aptitude test. I don't know. I didn't get it. So I don't know what it stands for. But we, uh, we were in rotations, essentially, trying to learn how to pass this test that would give us scholarship money and a claim to the school and all that kind of stuff. And the way that this thing worked is that we broke up into three rotations based on where we tested and what they thought your aptitude was. There were the smart people that they knew were going to get it. The people in the middle, they thought, there's some hope for you. And then the dumb people like me, they were kind of just there. But the test prep industry is really interesting. Like, I went to a school that did that for me, but it's a $20 billion industry in America, which is fascinating, that there's that much uh, putting people into test preparedness. There are a lot of students out here. we got undergraduate, graduate. We love our UMC friends that are here often. But we get that there's a need for us to prepare for academic tests. But what about the test of life? And how much have you sown into yourself so that when life does test you, how much are you ready to pull out in the seasons of good for the seasons of trial? That's really what James wanted to do as he started his letter off to these people. So we'll put verse one up that we read here. This was written by James, who describes himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he would write this to who? To the 12 tribes in dispersion. That's 12 tribes that are scattered. 
And we would see this, that James, although there were lots of Jameses in the New Testament, this James was James, the half-brother of Jesus. And he, as a Jew in the first century, was not uncommon. Uh, He wasn't foreign from seasons of suffering and seasons of trial. We would see James, who probably had a, a tough home life that he grew up in. His father, Joseph, died sometime before Jesus' public ministry. So if James is younger than Jesus, that would mean that James's father probably died when he was young, which is a trial, a great suffering that so many of you have been faithful through. But we also know that in a really practical way, he grew up in the same house as Jesus. So he had himself compared to Jesus constantly. If you're like me, you grew up with a brother and you hear this all the time, why can't you be more like your brother? And James got that fuller than anybody else. Could you imagine? Why can't you be like your brother, Jesus? So James grew up with that kind of trial, but as a Jew in the first century, persecuted by the church, I'm sorry, the church persecuted by the Roman Empire, persecuted by the synagogue, he would have been really, really familiar with what it was like to struggle economically, to struggle with tension in his own family as he didn't follow Jesus until after Jesus' resurrection. James was very, very familiar with what it would look like to endure trials. And he writes this to the church that is scattered They're not connected. They're not together. And there's something beautiful that happens with connectedness and something, honestly, that's really, frankly, ugly that happens when we're disconnected from one another. When I was flying back into town earlier this week, my wife and I were out of town, and, uh, you know, I I was on the airplane, bored like everybody is, and this is a real first-world problem, but you're stuck with what's in front of you on your little TV that's fancy if you get on a, a flight that has that. And I watched the Friends reunion on the right and on the left. Look at that, dude. What a contrast. OG friends and friends now. Age is coming for all of us. I'll get there in a little bit. But we see here that uh, friends is something that and lots of you are connected to, whether it was appointment television during your collegiate years or you're a little bit younger like me and you've binged it on Netflix. It's a cultural phenomenon. I think 52 million people watched the finale live. I mean, just incredible how many people resonated with this. And in the reunion there on the right, which I'm not necessarily endorsing. You know how Christians have to like endorse things to people? It's really great. It's got some profanity and some sexual content and da da da. I don't know why we do that, but I just did that for you. But if you watch the one on the right, you'll see that the, cre- the creators, the producers, the writers of Friends, their elevator pitch to people who were seeking to invest it and put it on TV, they said it's about that season in your life when your friends are your family. I think that that's why so many of you have probably connected to that. And in your own way, you've probably had friends that have felt like family, as Proverbs would say, a friend that's loved closer than a brother. So we need connection, and connection is important for us for lots of reasons, but when we're disconnected and we're in a trial, man, it's almost impossible. That's why we're so fanatical about small groups here. John's our groups pastor. He just got up here. We would love to help you find a place to live in community and encounter God's word together. We just had a great serve day here yesterday where over 200 people met here and went out and served throughout the city of Jackson. If you're a young adult, I'll be in the parking lot on Wednesday for a crawfish boil. Like we want people to be around people because it's important. It's not just about us feeling like you need to come and do our things so that I can keep my job secure. It's about you because connectedness does something to us. And James uses that as a backdrop as he goes into trial. So if I here am your test prep instructor for the balance of our time, I would love to give you four pointers that we see in these next 17 verses about uh, preparing for the test of life so that we can pass the test 
together. The first tip would be to stick with it. The first tip would be to stick with it. And you'll see here that I underline a couple of things that are really important to the passage. We see count it joy, various kinds of trials, testing of your faith, produces steadfastness, perfect and complete. And the first thing I want to say here that I love and I think we miss often is that God is here for our various kinds of trials. You can minimize suffering in your own life. You may be in the middle of something really, really hard. Or if it's not really, really hard, it might be really, really difficult or really, really complicated or really, really sticky. And you're in a trial. You're in a situation that's pressing you where there is a right and there is a wrong. There is something that you're under that you want to get through. And you're in this trial and you wonder, does God even really care about my suffering? Does he really even care about my tension or my discomfort? And I'm here to, sell, to tell you, yes, he does. He is a very present help in time of need. And we find here that he's here for various kinds of trials. Praise God that this isn't limited to familial or financial or relational tension or trials, but this is a word for all of our difficulties. And this concept that I underline in first, to count it all joy, what is that? It's not this idea that we would need to be uh, numb, overly, like, Uh, medicated people that would not be influenced by any negative thing in our life. It's not, hey, just keep your chin up and go through life. I know you got hard things going on. I know you're coming out of a hard season, but you know what? You're going to get through it. That's not what James would say to count it all joy. Rather, the depth of that word count would be this. It would be to consider. And more fully, it would be to take something and to lead it from one place to another. So what I would tell you and what James would tell you here is that to count it all joy, it's really to do this. It's to take our mindset of this is really, really bad. I'm in the middle of a trial. It's a bad thing for me. This is a difficulty. And to lead it like you would put a leash on a dog and to lead it over here and say, you know what? As a matter of fact, this could be really, really good for me. This bad thing could be a good thing. Now, how? How can a bad thing be a good thing? James goes on to elaborate a little bit, and I'm so grateful for that, that we don't serve a God who just says, you know what, life's going to be hard, keep your chin up, and we'll all get through it together. It's either going to get better now or it'll get better when you die. And there is a truth to that, but he would desire for our trials to be something that are good for us, that they would produce something good. So the second Uh, Sorry, the first point that I want to point you to here in trials is that they would indeed produce something good. That our trials, when we endure them, our hardships, our conflicts, our difficulty, our messy things, that they would yield for us gained perspective, wisdom, and a story to tell. And it's really been an honor for me. I've been working here for almost seven years. I've loved being in this church and knowing so many of you and over the course of time. That's a long time. So many of you have been through so many difficult things. You've lost people, and you had unfulfilled hopes, and you had days where you didn't know if you could even get out of bed. I could take this little headset thing off, and you could put a real microphone on up here, and person after person could come up, and we could testify to God's faithfulness that in a trial, he has been good to us on the other side of the trial. And that's not just me, 
and pointing to individuals here, that's not just you. That's the beauty of the body of Christ, and we get that, right? That God is working this beautiful tapestry of our brokenness into wholeness, and that when we are vulnerable, when we seek God, when we want to testify to his goodness, that we build up one another. As I've learned this early in my ministry, every person is either in the middle of a trial, on the way out of a trial, or headed into a trial. That's true for every single person, that trials are just around the corner if you're not in one right now. And that's what trials produce for us, deep in faith, that gives us perspective, wisdom, and a story to tell. The second thing about trials is that there's something to be endured. That's what verse 3 would tell us, is that through the endurance of our trials, we gain something. So, when we are in difficult situations, when we feel like we're being tried, being tested, being hard-pressed by God, we want to get out from under it. But the idea here of endurance that we see in the scripture is that there would be a weight that's pressed on us, but that we could hold up underneath it. It's this idea that we are pressed down, but that we're not crushed, like scripture tells us. But our trials are something to be endured, not something to be avoided, numbed, ignored, but something to be endured. We've got to believe in our trials, and we've got to believe now, if you're in a good season, that when you're in a trial, it's going to yield something good for you. That there is a God who wants to test us, and it yields something good in us. There's a quote up here by F.B. Meyer. He was a pastor in the 1900s, and he said this, that trials are God's vote of confidence in us. Trials are God's vote of confidence in us. What does he mean there? He means that God is giving you something that is going to yield something better in you. I'm looking out here, and there are a lot of fit people here. Like if you're a workouty, lifty person, you're like working on build whatever. You know how this thing works. You go to the gym, you run, you do whatever you do, and your body for a little while like feels worse. It honestly feels worse. But what happens there? It grows back better. You have to tear down to build up, and that's what God does for us in seasons of our trials. We are torn down, we're pressed, but we're built back up better that God would use trials to produce something good in us. And the third thing about trials here is that trials perfect us. That's what verse 4 would say. They perfect us and make us more like Jesus. Now, we are sinful. We will not be perfect, fully perfect, until we are with the Lord in the life to come. But we are in this process of sanctification, of growth, of being more and more like Jesus. And here's this idea that James had that Jewish Christians in the first century would have had and that we need to have, is that this concept of being perfect and complete is about this fully integrated and whole life. Not that our faith would be something separate, that we would only need when times get tough, like an accessory we can put on, like glasses or a hat. And that it would be a whole life, not a life of fractured, splintered, but a life where all of us is about Jesus Christ, where all of us is yielded to the Holy Spirit, where all of us is worshiping and honoring God the Father. 
So he says this, that our trials, what do they do? Would we endure them and we don't numb them? We don't pain, we don't try to hide the pain. Like we don't try to avoid the pain. Not that we're masochistic and we're looking for suffering in our life, but if God's got us in a hard thing and we know that we need to be there, that it's our as a believer to be there, man, then what are we doing if we avoid those things? We are losing an opportunity to become more like Jesus. That in our hard days, we would see God's goodness and our limitedness and that we would rely on him, that that would give us a more fully integrated and whole life where all of our faith is all that we are. The second thing, the second tip I would give you in trials to pass the test of life is to search for answers. But I've loved this passage. Every day of my life since I've been 16, I've been praying for wisdom because I see that passage and it's like a promise delivered. God makes lots of promises in scripture, Some of you are holding on to promises that God has never made to you. But you can find promises in Scripture that God gives, and one of them is this, that if any of us asks for wisdom, he'll give it freely, generously. And that word there that I underlined, generously, I love it. It's a word that some of us might be familiar with in this room because there's a restaurant that's named after it, Highland Village. The Greek there is aplos. It's simple. It's straightforward. It's generous. It's liberal. It's this is the thing, and I'm giving it to you because it's a good thing. But here's what we find is that Alex Eaton is going to charge you for a euro plate over there, but God's not going to charge you anything for wisdom. It's a free gift. He's given a free gift. And we have this picture here of a father who's in heaven who in seasons of trial, because I think that this applies to all God-given wisdom, But this is written immediately following a section about trial. So as we're in the middle of our difficult things, in the middle of your suffering, in the middle of your pain, where are you going for the answers? We know that there's a God, a good Father, who from heaven and in us through the gift of the Holy Spirit is giving us the answers that we need in our season of trial. I want to put a definition for wisdom up on the board, especially wisdom in the middle of a trial. Because what we find, what I've found, is there are lots of different definitions for wisdom. You'll hear from me that knowledge is no what and wisdom is no how. You'll hear that wisdom is uh, knowledge applied for skillful living. But I love this definition for wisdom because I think it's all-encompassing and it's all good. We would see this. That it is God-centered and God-given. So God is at the center of our wisdom, and he's the one who bestows it on us. God-centered, God-given discernment about God's word and how to navigate God's world. We would find knowledge, wisdom, about God's word, which is the ultimate source of truth. You want to know how to follow Jesus? You want to know God's will for your life? It's not quite this simple, but it's basically this simple. Read the Bible and how to navigate out of that God's world. That that's what he would desire for us. But we see this picture, particularly in verse 6, 7, and 8 here in this section, that God wants to give us wisdom, but we don't want to take it. We see this picture here of doubting. And there's some depth to that concept of doubting. 
Because we hear doubt and we think, oh, it's a question, right? It's a, well, you said this, but did you really mean this? But the picture that James paints for us here, that the Holy Spirit through James paints, is this. That there is a dispute between us and another party. That's the full depth of doubting. So, we see this picture. And at first we read this and we think, oh yes, it's a doubt. So it's a doubt between me and God. But later in verse 8, you'll see this, that it is really about a dispute between you and yourself. The part of yourself that would be dependent on God for wisdom. God, you've got the answer that I need in my trial. You've got the answer that I need to apply to endure this in a faithful way. And then you've got another side of you over here that says, "Uh, I don't know. This looks complicated. This This looks like it's not the easy way. And the picture here that we have in verse 8 is this double-mindedness. And it's so straightforward. It's dipsyche. It's two minds. And it's this picture that within us, we wouldn't have a left side of our brain or right side of our brain, but these two brains that would say, hey, I know what's right and I know what's right. So we would find this, that the person who doubts that God will, what? Reveal the answer. The right is like a person that has two minds. One mind of and for the world and one mind of and for God. And while I think that applies to all wisdom and seeking God for all wisdom, when we're seeking God in a trial, that's particularly true. We doubt God's goodness and if his way is really the best way. And we can do Isaiah 55 all we want to. Lord, your ways are higher, your thoughts are higher. But at the end of the day, when we're lying at bed at night, we really wonder, God, is this really worth it to do it your way? And here's what I love, is, that, is right in the middle of this, verse 7 gives us some clarity in a, a roundabout way. Verse 7 says that the person must not believe, must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. So when we're doubting, when we wonder, God, my way, your way. Easy way, your way. Maybe more hard way, your way. Way that looks good, your way. What we're doing is we are refusing to receive something that God is trying to give us. So we have this picture here And we have this picture in 17 and 18 that there is a father of lights who wants to give us good gifts. But we choose to oppose him with our split mind. And we get this picture that I I really love, and this is why this thing's on the stage. It's like two minds, and those two minds produce someone who's being tossed back and forth by a wave. You guys have been to the beach. You know what a wave looks like. So water comes in, water meets it underneath, and it crashes. So we have this picture of God who in a season of trial wants to give us something good. He wants to give us wisdom. He wants to give us the right way to endure our trial, to get out of it if it's time to get out of it, to stay in if it's time to stay in it, to see a conclusion, to love your difficult spouse, to stay in your hard job, like whatever the thing is for you that you need in wisdom. There's a picture of God wanting to give it to us. And we have to receive it. It's for us to take hold of it, to receive it. So there's this picture of us, you here in your little fish house. 
I don't know why all fish stuff is haunted. I don't know if fish are spooky. Like, I don't know what the story is, but this is your house. I'm sorry I didn't buy you a nicer house for the sake of this illustration. And then in here is wisdom that God wants to give you, right? So there's red, red for no, green for go. Very straightforward, right? So in this, God's given you wisdom. And then there are your things. There are things that people who don't know the Lord might be prescribing for you to do. There's things that you find on the internet, right, that aren't sounded in scripture. And then there are things that God's given you through prayer and fasting and things that your friends are giving you in community and things that this church would encourage you to do and live your life faithfully. So we've got this stuff in here in the middle of your trial and you're wondering, okay, how am I going to tell what's right and what's wrong? The water's already kind of moving here like it's murky even whenever you're at peace. It's not, I'm not so naive as to say, hey, if you just really trust God, he's going to give you the right thing straight away. He may but you also have to receive it. There's some work for you. You have to take hold of it. When you have this split mind, a mind for God and a mind of the world, what we see James tell us is that there's this picture of these waves that are rocking back and forth. So your little house underneath is all messed up, your little fish house. And then you go down to scoop up some wisdom and you end up with the good and a bad. And you're doing it again. And you're thinking, okay, God, yep, you gave me that, but I really don't know if this is the right thing or if this is the wrong thing, or if this is the thing that's going to be easy to do. So you go back for more wisdom, and you come up with something from the world. And that's the picture that James gives us, is that this divided mind, it betrays us. We are unstable in all of our ways. We don't know what move to make, and we don't know what choice to take. And we end up damp, for the sake of this illustration but we've all been there, right? I know that I have. I've sought earnestly for wisdom, but I don't know if I've really believed that God was going to deliver, that he was really going to give me the better way, or if this is just one of the things where I need to say, all right, God, you hold on. I got this. But this is what we see, is that doubting and disputing are different. And I want to give our doubters in the room uh, an encouragement here. This passage doesn't say that the Christian should never have doubts. It doesn't say we can't doubt. Instead, it says this, that a Christian should never have such a divided mind or such a divided attitude, feeling one way about God, feeling another way about God, that they think God's wisdom might not be the best way. Do we really believe that there's a father of lights that wants to give us good gifts? Or do we think that he's a big bully in the sky trying to set ants on fire? The third tip I would give you is this, and it's true for me now, that I need to watch the clock. Watch the clock. We see James here write about money, and it's fascinating that he would go, hey, we're scattered and it's lonely. Hey, watch out, your trials are coming for you, but God's bringing something beautiful. Hey, he wants to help you. He wants to give you guidance. He wants to help you be more in tune with him and who he is. Oh, and by the way, watch out for how money has a grip on you. And this is not James or me preaching against being wealthy. That's a great gift that some of you have. And I pray that you be generous and that to the person who has a lot, God would require a lot. But we see this, that he talks about the lowly, the poor and the high one, the rich. 
And this picture that he gives for riches in the way that all money betrays uh, flowers that were indigenous to the region that James would have been writing from. It's this beautiful picture that we see of miles and miles of these wildflowers. But then a desert heat and a wind would come, and just like that, all the flowers are dead. There is a timeliness and a time to the human life. We've only got so much time. And with the time that you have, what are you using to prop up your own wisdom instead of God's wisdom? What are you doing to elevate your own competency or your own intellect in a way that that might help you get through a trial and not be dependent on God? We see James go straight to money because he says this, I think, that the unique challenges that come with poverty and with wealth that they may be one of the greatest source of trials for the Christian. We love money. Money gives us security. It makes the world go round. And I'm not telling you money's a bad thing, but I'm telling you that the love of money may be something that you need to let go of. Because in your trial, you could go for your pocketbook and it could betray you. And the way, even the specific ways that trials come, financial trials, relational trials, come from uh, someone who's rich and someone who's poor, it just hits differently, really. So the rich person, if they lose a job and lose everything in their bank account, that probably hurts more for them than someone who's poor and might not have even liked that job in the first place and might not have even had much in the bank account. Easier for them to build up. But then we see the opposite. It could also be true for the rich person, an unexpected bill. Or another expense could be like, yeah, that's fine. I got plenty of margin. Could be as easy for some of us as moving money from one account to another account. But for the poor person, we would see that an unexpected expense or an extra bill, man, that could be crippling to them. And that money, while it's a good thing, a gift from God, if we're not careful, can give us this false sense of security that our dollars can help us endure our darkest days. And they just can't. There's only a debt that money can reach. But there's a deeper part of an eternal part of us that the assurance of God in trials can provide that money just can't. So watch the clock and watch how much you love money in your season of trial. It could inadvertently cause you not to rely on God, but to rely instead on your own ability. And the fourth thing that I'd give you here is to look out for tricks. You know, tests love to give you trick questions, right? And we see this picture here that John read earlier, that James wrote thousands of years ago, that there are these lures, these things that are coming for us. And he writes this in a section where he's talking about trials, he's talking about suffering, and we see this, that there are trials and that there are also temptations. So now we see temptations. Earlier we saw trials, and these trials are this. Trials are disruption from within. Remember, if the goal is a fully integrated life, a fully integrated life, we see that trials, I'm sorry, are disruption from without. It's something out there. It's something that's happening out there. Maybe it's someone, maybe it's something, but God is allowing it. We follow a God who, again, Exodus 16, he would give the Israelites manna from heaven so that they might see if he, sorry, he might see if they would obey his law. But then there's temptation, there's disruption from 
within. And I love this. James cuts right to it. He says, hey, when you're tempted, don't put that on God. We like to think that we're all good, right? That we're the best version of ourselves. That we can grow on our own and learn. But he's saying, when you are tempted and you give into temptation, God does not cause you to do that. God does not cause our disobedience. That's on us. Don't put that on God. But I love that he writes about temptations here because I've seen this be true in my own life. When I am really squeezed and I'm in the middle of something that's difficult, licks his lips and rubs his little hands and he's coming after me like a roaring lion seeking whom he might devour as a thief who's come to steal, kill, and destroy. So in your season, man, they, they're all the stronger. They're all the stronger. And we get two pictures here. One is a picture of being lured and enticed. Lord and enticed. And I'm not a fisherman. Like, I'm not good at fishing. I think it's remarkably boring. If that's your thing, that's cool, and I'm sorry to offend you. You can also have these afterwards, so if that's your thing. But we see this, right, that there are lures. He knows what's going to Maybe you're into whatever this is. I don't even know what you use this for. But if you're into this, whatever this metaphorically is for your life, then there's one of these for you. And Satan always coming after us. He's always going to be an accuser of the brethren and an adversary. Really getting squeezed. Those lures look all the better. But what happens to a fish on that lure? What happens to us when we give into temptation? We're hooked, we're caught, we're exposed, and we're killed. And the consequence of sin in this life for the person that doesn't love and trust Jesus, it's hell. And the consequence of sin for the believer, praise God, he's forgiven us from it, but there's still consequences. And in our trials, our hard days, James would say, do not take the lure because life is already tough why make it that much harder and the second picture we see is this picture of conception of conceiving something and for the adults in the room you're familiar with how conception works in a human life uh i remember when my wife was pregnant a couple of years ago you know we were expecting a child that we were gonna love you know you get all these ideas if you're a parent or if you've been around anybody who's having a kid, you get all these things, all these names and decorations and things that like this baby industry has said you must have for your child, but that's a different story. There are all these things that you anticipate and that you long for and that you know are going to be a good thing. But we see this, that the conception that happens with our desire produces sin and the sin leads to death. So we get this picture of something that we long for, that we anticipate this desire, but it's a sinful desire. And that desire produces sin. And that sin yields death. And that this conception, it betrays us. 
something we long for, something we think is going to help. Maybe it's unrelated to the trial, but it came in a season where life is hard and we wanted it to be one thing and it turned into something that betrayed us. And it's no coincidence that James puts this here because when we are pressed, we look for what? A way out. But James would tell us, don't take the bait. I want to invite you to stand with me. I'm going to invite the band back up. And I want to read you uh, part of a poem that I found when I was talking uh, to some people this week about this sermon. So I'm up here and I'm saying, hey, this is test prep, right, for a life of suffering. But I don't want to be insincere. Uh, I want to be real and I want to tell you, man, God's brought me through a lot of suffering and has brought you through a lot of suffering. And trials, they press us, right? All various kinds, even your little trials, they're still disruptive to your life. And God cares for your various kinds of trials. But there's something in us where in a season of suffering, in a season where it's hard, we'll look at God and we'll go, God, are you really good? Like, do you really care? If you're there, do you really care? And our perspective on him is so important. That's why James ends with 17 and 18 that he's a father of lights. There's no shadow. We can know who he is. No shifting, no change, just straightforward love, straightforward value for each of us. And that in that, he wants us to become more like him. But it's all about perspective. So here's a poem that I found about wrestling with God in difficult seasons. If you're close enough to wrestle God, you're close enough to be embraced by him. The choice is how we choose to see him. Will we see him as the creator of our suffering or the one who comforts us in the middle of it? Will we see him as the author of confusion or the one whose peace surpasses understanding? Will we see him as the cause of our pain or the one who Will we see him as someone looking to ruin our life or as the source of life itself? When we see God, will we demand that he conform to our image? Or will we finally allow ourselves to be broken and molded into his? If we're close enough to push God away, we're close enough to be pulled in. If we're close enough to curse his name, then we're close enough to bless him. If we're close enough to doubt his goodness, then we're close enough to truly taste. And if we're close enough to pierce his hands, then we're close enough to be healed by them. When we grab the hands of God to push him away, may we remember the holes that we put in them. May we not see you as a cosmic slave driver, but as the lover of our souls. In our wrestling with him, may we let go of the fight and accept the embrace. Let's pray together. Never been a Lord, you've experienced that. You have been betrayed. You've been let down. You've been disappointed. You've been poor. And so many more things. Jesus, we know that when we are faithful to let our trials grow us, Lord, we become more like you. So God, I pray that we would love you more. Father, that we would see your goodness. Lord, that if we're in a good season today in this room, I pray that we would keep this and we treasure this for a season of trial that's coming. 
Lord, your vote of confidence in us. And Lord, for the suffering in this room, God, we pray your grace and your nearness. Holy Spirit, your comfort and your guidance and wisdom, Lord, for what to do, thrive in the middle of it as part of the abundant life that you have given us, Lord, to know you and to know you fully. So Lord, help us in our trials, trust you and choose you. Give us wisdom, God. Lord, would you receive our tithes and our offerings now? God, would you receive our worship and song? 